Good evening, folks, and welcome back on this Saturday, the 27th day of August, 2022. I'm your host, Mark Hall, and I'll admit up front I struggled a bit with how to start off tonight and summarize a week like this one. Where, no doubt about it, the operative word was tyranny on just about every front you can imagine. And that's what makes it hard to decide where to begin. There's the federal bastion of intimidation, openly now having turned, past tense, the United States into a banana republic. And if that's not enough, there's 87,000 new IRS agents armed and ready to kick ass. And if you're not public school educated, you probably recall this line, sent hither to harass our people and eat out their substance, if not just kill them outright. There was more news on all of those fronts this week. More keeps coming out about the level of deadly deception involved in the biggest mass bioweapon attack on the world population in human history. What's really interesting there is that it's gotten so bad, the waste stream is now obviously beginning to re-spin the narrative. New lies for old. We'll have to come back to that in a minute. There were advances on the World War III front, too, but no mushroom clouds yet. And the attempt to destroy the U.S. military from within isn't even being hidden anymore. But when I step back and look at it, I have to admit, I ended up with a couple of stories that I wasn't even sure if I was going to do. Because they set the stage so appropriately, here we go. The first one comes from the Daily Mail, of all places, courtesy of Joe Rogan. And they don't even get around to admitting that until well down in the piece who had the evil Mark Zuckerberg on at the end of the week. And, as they put it, Zuckerberg sparked outrage with his bombshell revelation that Two-Facebook, and that's the proper spelling, folks, deliberately used an algorithm to suppress stories about Hunter Biden's devastating laptop from hell back in 2020 before the rigged November election after an intervention by, oh, you know it, don't you, America's Gestapo, the FBI the felonious blockers of any real investigations. Republican politicians, the story continues, like Kevin McCarthy, who led the GOP fury, and voters have accused the FBI and two Facebook of censorship, gee, do you think? Adding further questions about whether Americans should have been aware about the FBI-hidden laptop before going to the polls and saying that their votes really didn't matter anyway. Oh, and yeah, it does call into question the impartiality of the Bureau and their whoremeister-in-chief, Chris Ray, who also just happened to have ordered the raid on Mar-a-Lago this month. Said Republican Representative Andrew Clyde of Georgia, quote, this isn't just insane, it's election interference. The Oversight Committee must immediately invite Mark Zuckerberg to testify under oath about the FBI's attempts to circumvent the First Amendment. The American people deserve answers and accountability, unquote. And if you'd been holding your breath waiting for that, you'd have been dead at least two years ago. The GOP have torn into the quashing of the story, the hiding of the laptop, and they vowed to investigate Zuckerberg, the FBI, and Hunter if they retake the majority in the House in the midterms. In other words, if Big Brother doesn't do, again, exactly what they got away with before, and why would we think anything else? Tweeted the virtually spineless Kevin McCarthy, so-called GOP leader, the FBI colluded with big tech to silence news stories weeks before the 2020 election. Yeah, and we've known that for two years now, in an attempt to control your access to information. 
And we've known that for even longer. Democrats in Congress, he said, and that's hardly the extent of it, folks, have been intentionally ignoring the facts when Republicans are back in charge. This time, for sure, hey, trust us, have we ever lied to you before? We will hold all of them accountable. Yeah, just like we held Fauci and Comey and McCabe and Strzok and Brennan and Clapper and Hitlery and military traders like Mark Milley and Lloyd Austin and Pelosi and the Biden Fuhrer and yeah, those other sellouts and oathbreakers who put their hand on a Bible and lied. Or, uh, well, trust us, someday we will. Speaking on Joe Rogan's show, the billionaire Zuckerberg said that Two-Facebook enacted a policy of, quote, decreased distribution to deliberately push down the offending story on people's news feeds to limit its reach, while Twitter went even further and banned the story outright from its platform. Said the billionaire, I think it was five or seven days. Later, we're hearing ten, folks. I think it was arguably a heck of a lot longer than that. When it was basically being determined whether it was false. (laughs) And once we determined it was true as all get out, whoa, now we really got a problem. Back to the quote, the distribution on Facebook was decreased, but people were still allowed to share it, so you could still share it, you could still consume it, unquote. You just couldn't do it very much. Three weeks before the election, as you may recall, and we talked about it here, of course, because they weren't, the New York Post revealed the sordid contents of the laptop from hell showing compromising photos of the then-presidential candidate's son and his questionable, to put it really mildly, business dealings implicating his father, a.k.a., as the laptop also pointed out, the big guy. The huge cache of files, they admit now, emails and photos, was seen by many as the smoking gun that could have turned the tide in the election. But socialist media bosses at Two Facebook and Twitter minimized the story for their unfounded fears that it could be Russian disinformation. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. The Daily Mail does tell us that they independently verified the laptop with a forensic analysis by top cyber experts. They weren't alone, of course. And they've been regularly publishing revelations ever since, which at least that part, folks, is true. While many other news outlets still have refused to touch the story. But now Zuckerberg has openly admitted how he tried to limit the electorate from accessing the stories in a terrifying insight into how easily democracy can be undermined by tech firms. Your host has said this many, many times. It bears repeating again. That's the nature of the public-private partnership, a.k.a. fascism, the real kind, writ large. And I want to make one more observation here before we move on. This wasn't, folks, about something that might have changed the outcome of the election. Electronic vote rigging and ballot stuffing did that. The election was already going overwhelmingly for Trump. What this would have changed is the ability to cover it up and hide from the American people what really happened. And that was the reason they had to stick a fork in it. Picture for just a second how difficult the spin would have been if William Barr and the Supreme Court had to admit, yeah, in spite of the fact that we knew all of this stuff was out there, and so did the American people, we're not going to investigate what happened to rig the election. Two years later, everybody knows that's precisely what happened. But now they've gotten away with it. And they've deployed the American Gestapo in force to make sure there's no going back. Which takes me now to the story that I really at first didn't want to do. Because honestly, it's kind of worthless. But you know what, folks? It also makes the point. This is what I call scumbag interviewing scumbag. But not really. Because no real question got answered here. 
sellout Don Lemon, though, at first actually did look like he was going to ask the important question. Who could have thought it? <laughs> Don't hold your breath, but here goes. Let's start with what the president said at a fundraiser tonight, just before his rally. The president likened what he called extreme MAGA philosophy to semi-fascism. What exactly is semi-fascism, Kareem? Now, full stop just for a second. We've seen real fascism, folks. We see it almost every day. It's the public-private partnership that is destroying the very constitutional republic and putting in its place a tyranny the likes of which the world has never seen before. It's lawless three-letter agencies run amok. It's what follows next. So what is semi-fascism? Given that anti-fascists we've seen are really fascists, and it's truly fascism that controls the deep state, I guess you could say rhino Republicans that go along would be semi-fascists. But no, that's not where she's going to go. Where she's going to go is, well, your guess is as good as mine. Still, though, her lips are moving. What exactly is semi-fascism, Kareem? So let me just first say this uh, tonight, uh, what you heard from this president, uh, Don, and again, thank you for having me, because this is really important. The American people have a choice in front of them, and the president laid that out very clearly, very powerfully tonight. When he drooled on his chin and forgot where the teleprompter was. When you look at what Democrats are doing and what they are delivering and what they have done, Don, in less than in less than two years, which is lowering costs on prescription drugs, lowering the energy uh, uh, costs. Oh, whoa, whoa. Enough of that. What a load of BS. Lowering the energy costs. Oh, yeah. You can fill your electric car up now for only a 100 bucks, and you won't be allowed to have gasoline much longer. But don't worry, you couldn't afford that, much less diesel anyway. What a lying scumbag. Notice, though, she's nowhere close to answering the question. And that's not a surprise, but it is at least illuminating. What exactly is semi-fascism, Kareem? I'll skip the whole litany of BS, including the historic legislation to put the climate police right down your throats and fund it with the biggest expansion and a standing army in this once free nation's history. And this is where even the sycophant Don Lemon almost seems to have had enough. All of these things are important. Standing up for women. And they are. Green. I want to get to all those things. With, with all due respect. No, but, I, but we no, have a short no. time. I'm going to get to all those things. But I just, if you'll answer my question, we can get to those I things. I am. What exactly I am. is I, semi-fascism? Don, I was just about to get to your question. Okay. I really was. But right. I want to, you brought me on the show for a reason, and I have to talk about it. I understand that. I just have tonight. limited Wait. time with you. I just want to make well, sure we well, get all the by, by having this back and forth, we're actually taking away from the time. So here we go. Uh, no, no, we don't go. But listen to this, and disgusting as it is, try to pick through the BS. Um, so what we are seeing from Republicans and what we have seen uh, from, from Republicans these past several years is that they are attacking our democracy. They think elections actually ought to count for something. Uh, they are taking away our freedom. It's getting harder and harder to sacrifice children to Molech in some states. And how dare you think you have freedoms or rights or anything that was once protected by the Constitution? We may just send some armed agents out next year to blow your ass away. Oh, yeah, there's taking away some freedoms. That's what we are seeing. Bloody, bloody, blah, enough already. That's why I said that to you. I started off because I wanted to show what we're doing and what we have done and also make that contrast because that's what we're seeing from, from again, from Republicans. It's a MAGA element, and we're going to continue to make that choice. We're going to make sure that we're making it very clear uh, for the American people, and that's what uh, the, the president did tonight okay. in Maryland, and he's going to continue to do that across the country. Thank you for... 
Yeah, says this sellout. Thank you for answering my question so thoroughly. What exactly is semi-fascism? Here's one current cogent answer, and I'll introduce it by reading one of those very much ignored sections of the Constitution for these United States. Article 1, Section 8, as a matter of fact, where it says the Congress shall have the power to do a number of things, and they don't pay any attention to that anymore and do a whole lot of things that have nothing to do with the powers actually delegated. But one of those that is in the list is to provide for calling forth the militia to execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrections, and repel invasions. Uh, full stop, and I'm going to suggest, look at those three things that they can call forth the militia to do execute the laws of the Union, and arguably that doesn't mean unconstitutional three-letter agencies to execute the inhabitants of the Union, suppress insurrections and repel invasions. Well, as is pretty clear at this point, on that score, they're literally 0 for 3, especially over the last several years. The laws of the Union have been undermined, if not outright destroyed. The insurrection was successful. They completed the takeover in 2021, and the invasion, as we've seen, is pretty much out of control at this point. So from there, let's go to a piece from the Lowell Sun, which begins similarly, saying it's the responsibility of the central government to protect the United States of America from invasion. So how is it possible that top regime officials have directed 21,000 Border Patrol officers to retreat or distance themselves and seek cover in response to thrown or hurled projectiles from illegal aliens or drug smugglers or terrorist invaders or just about anybody else that wants to come in across the open southern border? They're directed to keep their weapons holstered when drug smugglers drive by, and agents are not allowed to use guns against a fleeing vehicle. Instructions also indicate that officers will be penalized if they don't step back. These new rules, it says, were issued in March by Michael Fisher, chief sick of the U.S. Border Patrol. And in a news conference, Fisher told reporters that so-called agents would be equipped with short-range tasers and pepper spray, plus medium-range pellet guns to deter attacks. <laughs> yeah, that'll deter them. With all of these restrictions, the story asks, rightfully, what's the point? How can we even begin to protect our borders? How are we protecting our own Border Patrol people, much less Americans? American citizens, does the regime even think or care about protecting actual Americans? Well, we know the answer. It's become crystal clear. But wait, there's a bit more here. And at this point, I'll reveal a quick secret. This article was actually penned in April of 2014, years ago, during the Obama regime, when the illegal alien invasion was but a uh, foretaste of what it's become since. And, and maybe this helps explain why. It also harkens back to another point. At the same time this was going on, the Obama Fuhrer was building what was called a non-military national security force, the one he referenced, you remember the famous quote, in his 2008 campaign speech. We cannot continue to rely only on our military in order to achieve the national security objectives that we've set. We've got to have a civilian national security force that's just as powerful, just as strong, just as well-funded. We gotta have that standing army that the founders rightfully called the bane of liberty. And guess what, folks? He's now succeeded with his Biden puppet, an 87,000 strong new IRS standing army sent hither to harass our people and eat out their substance. Referring to what the regime pulled off last week, the Epoch Times wrote this week that the new reconciliation bill from the Democrats isn't just the largest ever expansion of a government agency. It's also the largest expansion of the domestic police state in American history. But back to how Obama set the stage for it and is still pulling the strings. 
So the sun, and remember, folks, this was back in 2014. It was absolutely true then. We're still seeing the effects today. Obama purged our military of generals and officers, cutting the military budget and advocating gun control, but in the process, building a vast arsenal of weapons and ammo under the Department of Aktung Homeland Security. Border agents have the most dangerous job in federal law enforcement, and since they're being told to refrain from using lethal force on the job, Why, oh why, is the DHS hoarding bullets? And this quotes that General Accounting Office, or GAO, report from that era, noting that the DHS planned and obviously succeeded in buying a huge amount of ammunition, 703 million rounds through only fiscal year 2018. And no, it's not just Homeland Security. Other three-letter agencies are becoming more and more militarized. And today, folks, we're seeing the effects under the Obama regime's watch. Domestic agencies that have nothing to do with actual national defense. And now I guess we could be talking about the military, since national defense seems to have literally fallen off their radar. But then it was things like the Department of Education, the U.S. Postal Service, the Social Security Administration, that are all stockpiling weapons and ammunition. But wait a minute. Yeah, Probably number one in the heap, the Internal Revenue Service, the terror enforcement arm for the private Federal Reserve. And by the way, folks, that is fascism at its finest, the public-private partnership writ large and literally totalitarian in extent. As this author concluded way back then, the Obama regime strategy, which now seems to have been successful, folks, is to take guns away from innocent citizens so that they can't fight back, shred the Constitution, well, call that one a done deal, defile the military, and ooh, have they succeeded beyond their wildest dreams there, and build a shadow army, a standing army is how the founders put it, through three-letter federal agencies. He quotes George Washington, who once said, A free people ought not only to be armed and disciplined, but they should have sufficient arms and ammunition to maintain the status of any who might attempt to abuse them, which would include their own government. Unquote. I guess the only difference today is it's no longer even remotely our own government. We've seen a couple of really major events of late that make that part undeniable. From the Gestapo-style raid on Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate, to the fact that it happened on the very same day that Big Brother decided to pass a so-called law, putting into place a new standing army of, well, goons, officers sent hither to harass our people and eat out their substance in the form of 87,000 IRS agents. Since then, videos of what they seem to have planned keep coming out like maggots out of a corpse. No doubt all of that is intended to scare the you-know-what out of people who might otherwise reject the already-in-progress Fourth Reich. And yeah, isn't it funny? This week we had the 30th anniversary of the execution of a young mother in the door of her cabin in Ruby Ridge, Idaho, which was a timely reminder that the lawless FBI has been getting away with this for decades now. They just seem to have gotten more and more bold about it. Oh yeah, and the standing army's adding new three-letter agencies to the mix too. So where does that leave us today? Actually, I've got several stories, all of which, one way or another, bear on that same topic. Let's start with this one. It might sound just a bit different, but there is a connection, of course. If you don't have a real army dedicated to defense, well, what fills the vacuum? And this one, I'll admit, take it with a grain of salt, because it is single-sourced, but it looks like a pretty reliable source, and certainly it fits with what else we've seen. But it does come from Hal Turner, as well as some online social media platforms that are supposedly from Special Forces folks, like this one from Terminal CWO that quotes the command structure to say the following, and we'll interpret it in just a second. Have your bravos prep your Carl G's for turn-in. I've fought back on it as long as I can. Group commander said, tough shit. 
SECDEF is sending them to Ukraine. Okay, well, you probably know that SECDEF references the traitorous Lloyd Austin, who's always seemed to care far more about political correctness than national defense, and not only dumbing down the troops and turning them into sexual abominations, but now openly killing them as well with the poison poke. All of Big Brother's deep state seems to want the American people disarmed. Looks like they're now up to doing it with the military. And if you think about it, how better than to send things that soldiers might need in the upcoming battle to Big Brother's corrupt playground in the Ukraine? Hal Turner's radio show introduces it this way. The United States military, or as your host puts it, what's left of it, seems to be in the process of being deliberately disarmed so that weapons and ammunition can instead be sent to Ukraine. Even special forces units have now been instructed to turn in some rifles. Members of special forces, he notes, are communicating about the situation using certain social media, and they detail precisely what's taking place. I just read part of the note. The CWO, and I'm assuming that stands for Chief Warrant Officer, who posted it, said, I'm getting word from team guys, special forces, that they're being forced to turn in their Carl G's. That means Carl Gustav 8.4 centimeter recoilless rifle, an indispensable piece of equipment to SF teams, so that they can be sent to where else? Ukraine. Oh, and here your host notes, yes, this is out of the real, and arguably this may be what they suspect, theater of battle. This, says the poster, removes a very important item out of an operator's kit. There's some other responses here from other military. One of them says, not just SF, you didn't hear it from me, but HIMARS systems slated for my regiment were sent there, meaning Ukraine, evidently, along with most of the ammo allotted to the regiment for training this year for both tubes and rockets. Another adds, we're being played to become defenseless. And the reply, apparently it's also happened to the other Marine Corps artillery regiments. Additional interchanges added comments like, this is effing retarded, and this question, are we just conceding all the conflicts for the next 10 years? It doesn't make any sense. There's another question in here, can't be real, are you, uh, with a cute little brown pile of stuff icon, are you essing me? Word came from the B team, says the reply, it's for real. And all your host can add is, gee, it does sound consistent with what this regime's been up to now, doesn't it? Here's a related story. This one, too, is not the first time we've heard things like this, but it does come from Stephen Stanford on the All News Pipeline. While it's become obvious, he begins to, most who are paying attention to real news, that the Biden regime, he calls it the Biden cabal, but you get the point, has been waging a hideous and certainly no longer covert war upon the American people. Anyone who stands against the Democrats' insane agenda, practically since the day he got into the office, uh, actually before that, folks, or he wouldn't have, And the groundwork for this war has been going on for years, with the strategic planning of the globalists intentionally focusing on, and basically now they've gutted it, the U.S. military. While the Biden regime has weaponized one federal three-letter agency after another against Americans, quite literally creating the globalist's own private army, the founders called it a standing army, as you know, weaponized to kill Americans out of agencies like, but not limited to, the IRS, DHS, and of course FBI, Of great concern in this war upon our military, and it's been seen most recently in this story over at the National Guard Association of the U.S., reporting that according to the Adjutant General of Florida, the U.S. Defense Department's COVID-19 vaccine mandate, 
I hope you're sitting down, folks, seriously threatens military readiness. Gee, do you think? And as Major General James O. Eifert has also warned, according to that same NGAUS story, besides forcing American troops to take the poison Zyklon B injection, the vax that isn't a vax, and which not only doesn't stop people from catching COVID, but weakens their immune system, making they're more likely to die not only of that, but just about any other opportunistic infection. General Eifert said, quote, I've never been more worried about the future of the U.S. armed forces than I am right now. This according to a Wall Street Journal op-ed published late last week. He also warned of some other things that we've talked about here on this show. Like, quote, one of the military's most fundamental duties is to recruit and retain men and women willing to defend their country. Unfortunately, he continued, current federal policy is rendering that goal unattainable. Noting that America's enemies are no doubt salivating, whether they're enemies of America within or from without. And you've heard us talk about some of the numbers, too. He decried the DOD requirement and its potential impact on guardsmen across the U.S., saying the Army Secretary's deadline for all reserve component soldiers to be vaccinated expired on June 30th, leaving almost 40,000 National Guard members and 20,000 Army reservists nationwide at risk of involuntary termination. Well, hey, I guess they can always get a job with the IRS, that new standing army, and fight enemies a whole lot closer to home. We'll pick it up right there when we get back. Stay with us. Welcome back now to the second segment for this evening. I'm your host, Mark Hall, and let's pick it up right where we left off. With Major General Eifert's warning about how the U.S. military is literally being undermined, destroyed from within. From that op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal, he continues, My Florida National Guard formations face the potential loss of about a 1,000 unvaccinated guardsmen out of 12,000 total airmen and soldiers, he added, leaving us shorthanded as our state enters hurricane season, while more than 1,000 soldiers and airmen are also being deployed on federal missions around the world. He notes things that we've also talked about here. Only 23% of recruitment-age Americans meet the eligibility requirements, and fewer still are even interested. Why should we further damage military readiness by discharging honorably serving military members and shunning unvaccinated new recruits, especially when he said our world is becoming only more dangerous? And the answer, folks, I'll suggest, is obvious and undeniable. And it kind of buttresses the point when you realize they're disarming actual military and instead sending those weapons where they can be either destroyed or pirated. Millions, if not billions of dollars worth are already reported to have ended up in the wrong hands. And hey, anybody remember Afghanistan? By the very folks that are no doubt salivating at what they intend to do to the corpse of America once the regime here is finished. 
But it's not just America that's being set up for the takedown. Here are a couple of other stories that make that point from overseas. First, from the Countersignal.com. It's called an exclusive about how their communist son of Castro, at the very least figuratively, Fidel Trudeau, is installing weapons armories and interrogation rooms for the new Ministry of Climate Change. Architectural plans, it claims, have been leaked to the countersignal, revealing Trudeau's sinister plans to weaponize the climate change agenda. It's about something called the ECCC, the Ministry of Environment and Climate Change Canada, which is building a new facility in Winnipeg that will be home to a firearms armory, the kind of stuff that Canadian peons already aren't allowed to have, interrogation rooms, biological labs, media relations offices, controlled quiet rooms, and, what else, intelligence facility. All of which provides an open window into Trudeau's future plans for Achtung climate enforcement. Oh yeah, and if it sounds to you like these actions aren't that dissimilar from things that took place in Europe, like the Netherlands, with the widespread attacks on farmers, farming, and food production, you're not alone. The story goes on to note that the Impact Assessment Act, or IAA, quietly passed in the final days of Trudeau's majority government, granted sweeping new power to ministerial enforcement officers. Does this sound even remotely familiar, folks? But up until now, it says little has been explained about where and how the new climate police will be deployed. (laughs) I guess we have some clues if we're paying attention to what's happening similarly around the world. Like, for a second example, in Macron's communist France, and from the same source, France too has now launched their climate change police force. Author Kian Bexty this time quotes Breitbart to say that French interior minister Gerard Dumanin is hiring 3,000 so-called green police officers to go after anyone who violates their green-related criminal issues to safeguard the country of France from disasters supposedly caused by, say it with me folks, anthropogenic or man-made climate change. In an article with Le Journal du Dimanche, quote, faced with this, we must improve the work of judicial investigation, said the man. We've therefore decided to massively reinforce the resources of the central office for the fight against damage to the environment and to launch these 3,000 green police posts saying the climate change police force will quote be a revolution and this after the EU crisis management czar Janez Lenarchik called for the rapid creation similarly of an EU European wide civil protection force to enforce the draconian and idiotic new climate laws across the EU Who cares what it does to the sovereignty of once independent member states? And it does really seem, doesn't it, like standing armies are just busting out all over, while actual armies that once at least were supposed to defend their nation are being, well, disarmed and ultimately destroyed from within. And since the gloves are certainly off when it comes to the police state now, I would be remiss if I didn't update this story this week. Because, folks... This week is the 30th anniversary of one of the seminal events in the descent of the American Republic into an outright totalitarian tyranny, and certainly the rise of the American Gestapo as well. 30 years ago this past weekend, August 21st, 1992, the long-term setup by the FBI of a man named Randy Weaver came to fruition. The utterly unconstitutional ATF certainly has some dirty hands as well. As it turns out, Weaver had been set up and entrapped to saw off a couple of shotguns to just a fraction of an inch shorter than the unconstitutional National Firearms Act limit. They wanted to coerce him into becoming an informant against the, what else, 
domestic violent extremists of the day, and he refused. So they sent U.S. Marshals and federal agents and staked out his very rural property and cabin at Ruby Ridge, Idaho. On August 21, 1992, Randy Weaver, a family friend Kevin Harris, and Randy's 14-year-old son Sammy Weaver and their dog Stryker were walking in the property when the dogs alerted to the presence of something and started barking, which prompted the marshals to shoot and kill Stryker. You son of a bitch, you shot my dog, said the teenager, who returned fire. And that was the last thing he ever said or did. A brief firefight ensued, and U.S. Marshal William Deegan was killed as well. The next day, the infamous Long Reigns Executioner, you've probably heard the name, and if you haven't, you should, Lon Horiuchi, FBI sniper, had been waiting several hundred yards away from the Weaver cabin. He was heard to brag about how he could shoot out the center of a quarter from that distance. While the Weaver family prepared young Sammy's body for burial. After shooting Randy Weaver in the back when he stepped out of the cabin, Horiuchi took aim at his wife Vicky as she held their infant daughter in the door of the cabin and executed her with a single shot through the neck. And as James Bovard notes, the force of the 308 caliber bullet that crashed into Vicky Weaver's head had such force that skull and bone fragments went into Harris standing nearby, injuring him severely. And in the course of subsequent hearings and news reports, a whole lot more has come out about this disgusting, literally tyrannical overreach. For example, the grossly misnamed hostage rescue team of the FBI, then headed by Dick M. Rogers, who later served the same function at the executions in Waco, Texas, issued what turned out to be some, well, let's just put it as kindly as we can, questionable, albeit unconstitutional, orders. He changed the normal rules of engagement, which allow for the use of deadly force only when necessary to protect an innocent person from imminent peril, to something, well, let's just say a little bit more Hitlerian. The new rules called on the FBI's execution team, uh, snipers, to shoot any armed adult male who was outside the cabin. And it turns out, yeah, maybe a mom or two in the process would be great as well. When Randy Weaver was later tried in Idaho in 1993, and by the way, found innocent on just about every count, HRT Director Rogers was unable to cite any authority for allowing the FBI, in violation of Idaho state law, to shoot people who were posing no threat to anyone. And as David Copel points out in his book, No More Wacos, when the new license to kill rule went into effect, neither Harris nor Randy Weaver, the only two surviving adult males at Ruby Ridge, knew of such a rule, nor indeed that the FBI was surrounding the cabin. Wrote investigative journalist James Bovard years later, the suspects were never given a warning, nor were they given a chance to surrender, and they had taken no action against the FBI agents. But as it turns out, folks, the American Gestapo was just getting started. During the next week, reports that book, the FBI used the microphones that they had installed to taunt the family. Good morning, Mrs. Weaver. We had pancakes for breakfast. What did you have? Asked the um, agents at least once. Weaver's 16-year-old daughter, Sarah, who survived the encounter, said that baby Elisheba, who also survived the fall from her dead mother's arms, was often crying for her mother's milk when these FBI messages taunted them. The FBI later claimed, idiotically, that they didn't know Mrs. Weaver was dead, although there did turn out to be an FBI psychological profile that identified Vicki Weaver as the dominant member of the family and noted that if she were neutralized, maybe everyone else would surrender. As you may recall, the standoff eventually ended days later when Colonel Bo Greitz, for whom Randy Weaver had served in Vietnam, was successfully able to negotiate a peaceful surrender. 
In hindsight, that too turns out to have been a good thing for the Weavers because the FBI had plans on the very next day to launch the same kind of deadly final solution attack on the Weaver cabin that they later used with armored vehicles and CS chemical warfare agents on the Seventh-day Adventist sect called the Branch Davidians Church on April the 19th, 1993. Oh yeah, and Lon Horiuchi was there too, along with some of the same heroes from that earlier dress rehearsal. The standoff part of the story ended eight days after Vicki Weaver was shot, when Bogreit succeeded in convincing Weaver to surrender based on the promise that he would meet with famed criminal defense attorney Jerry Spence, who agreed to take the Weaver case pro bono. In April 1993, while the feds were working their magic down in Waco, Kevin Harris went on trial for murder, and Randy Weaver was charged with conspiracy to commit murder. <laughs> I guess sometimes the government does believe in conspiracies, folks. Where Big Brother attempted to portray Weaver as a political and religious zealot who prophesied and then sought to create a holy war with federal agents, even though Weaver's clear goal had always been to avoid government agents. They claimed self-defense and that the government had unjustifiably fired first. And here's the irony, folks. With no defense evidence even introduced, the jury acquitted the accused of all charges of criminal violence. And then the court fined the federal government for withholding evidence and for lying and complained that the FedGov had acted with, quote, a callous disregard for the rights of the defendants and the interests of justice, unquote. And, gee, look how far we've come since then. So many courts don't even bother with that anymore. Writes David Copel, the jury appeared convinced that the wrong set of people were on trial. Which leads me to the other observations I wanted to make about this abomination three decades later. Because it's really interesting, I suggest, how so many of the same names just kept coming back and coming back. And now we know them for different reasons, but ultimately, even if it all still boils down to raw evil. For example, and this too shows just how far we've come, but in the wrong direction, a Justice Department internal investigation. Yeah, they used to do that. Compiled a 542-page report detailing the varieties of federal misconduct and cover-ups in the Ruby Ridge case and suggested, get this, criminal charges be filed against FBI officials involved in the abomination. Hey, guess what happened to that? In January of 1995, then-FBI Director Louis Free announced, ooh, wrist slaps for the FBI officials involved, including his buddy and friend Larry Potts, who supervised the operation from FBI headquarters and approved the shoot-without-provocation orders that, eh, as the report put it, contravened the Constitution of the United States. And when the evil Attorney General Janet Reno, you know, the butcher of Waco, Later nominated Potts, you heard that right, for deputy director of the FBI, top newspapers and members of Congress protested. But a fellow named William Barr, and that name too is going to keep coming back, told the New York Times that his friend Potts was, quote, deliberate and careful, and I developed a great deal of confidence in his judgment. I can't think of enough good things to say about him, unquote. A few months later, wrote James Bovard in January of 2019, in connection with Barr's hearing to become, yep, Attorney General for the United States. Potts was suspended by the FBI after suspected perjury surrounding Ruby Ridge. He wasn't charged, of course, and retired with a cushy pension, you can rest assured, a couple of years later. And the Department of Justice then paid $3 million to surviving members of the Weaver family, primarily his children, to settle the wrongful death lawsuit of their mother. But this is interesting. Hey, whatever happened to Lon Horiuchi, the sniper who shot and killed Vicki Weaver and later showed up at Waco to commit still more murders, but this time on a grander scale? Eventually, the state of Idaho realized what was going on and decided to try that scumbag for murder. 
which is where the sainted, and I use that term with great big quotes around it, Bill Barr sprung into action. Notes Bovard, nobody asked during those hearings about Barr's legal crusade for blanket immunity for any federal agents who killed American citizens. Obviously, they've got it coming. And as we've seen recently, the intent certainly seems to be to expand that precedent to include all kinds of three-letter agencies, but especially the new 87,000 armed henchmen strong IRS standing army. Well, during the hearings, Barr received, says Bovard, a routine questionnaire from the Judiciary Committee asking him to disclose any past work, including pro bono activities, quote, serving the disadvantaged. And it turns out the disadvantage that Barr spent the most time helping was an FBI agent. You know the name, don't you? Yeah, Lon Horiuchi, who executed Vicki Weaver holding her baby Elisheba in 1992. Barr spent two weeks organizing former attorneys general, there's a whole bunch of scumbags there to pick from, I have no doubt, and others to support, quote, an FBI sniper in defending against criminal charges in connection with the Ruby Ridge incident. And he also said he assisted in framing legal arguments advanced in district court and in the subsequent appeal to the Ninth Circus. And as it turns out, writes Bovard, that charitable work for an FBI agent that already had a federally paid law firm defending him helped to tamp down one of the biggest scandals during Barr's time as Attorney General the first time around from 91 to early 93, where he was responsible for both the U.S. Marshal Service that killed Sammy's dog and kicked off the tyrannical demonstration that followed and the Federal Bureau of Intimidation, two federal agencies whose misconduct at Ruby Ridge, quote, helped to weaken the bond of trust that must exist between ordinary Americans and our law enforcement agencies, according to a 1995 Senate Judiciary Committee report. And how's that for a laugher, folks? The bond of trust that exists between ordinary Americans and their federal masters. Oh, and if you're still curious, where is that murdering son of a you-know-what, Lon Horiuchi, today? Answer? You don't know, and you're not going to be told. What you do know, though, is that he's in the Federal Witness Protection Program, probably sipping down a pina colada somewhere. So, yeah, how's that for accountability and that bond of trust? And I guess on this 30th anniversary week, we don't want to forget what Bill Barr was able to accomplish either. Not only the cover-up and protecting the guilty, many of whom, of course, went on to even greater crimes, Waco and elsewhere, but maybe you remember his greatest challenge and, of course, success. When confronted with the election fraud evidence and evidently asked to actually do his job, Bill Barr famously told the soon-to-be ex-president that those claims were bullshit. And that pretty well summarizes his career, at least in your host's opinion. This was the week where some of the world's most powerful banksters met in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, to discuss what looks like how best to continue what they've been up to. One of the big questions to be answered, would the Fed pivot and reverse on interest rates? And just how much more pain do they say is ahead? Well, as the week draws to a close, this is finally over. Good riddance. Let's get it out of the way. Jerome Powell finally spoke at Jackson Hole. And as Charlie McGilligot put it for Nomura, Powell's speech was largely a nothing burger. Although it seems that the Powell pivot didn't happen. Right before Powell spoke... Said Zero Hedge, the market had priced in a 48% chance of a 75 basis point or three-quarter percent rate hike in September. Now, it's not clear. It does seem lower, but maybe that's the point. Zero Hedge posted a piece quoting dozens of top analysts after it was all over. and concluded, well, putting it all together, Bloomberg Steve Matthews notes that the overall take seems to be Powell was moderately hawkish. The Fed chair is prepared for the economy and households to sustain some pain in order to lower inflation. Your host will say, uh, don't count on lower inflation, folks. 
Powell did issue a dire-sounding warning against prematurely loosening policy. And while the recent improvement in inflation, yeah, sure, is welcome, he pushed back against it and said the Fed needs to see a lot more because evidently they're not buying it either. He did balance a bit by repeating that the Fed will slow down rate hikes at some point, but left the debate on the size of the September increase to another day. Meanwhile, though, Brent crude is back above $100 a barrel, and U.S. natural gas is nearing a retest of its own record high. Let's follow that up with some salient analysis, courtesy of Charles Hugh Smith and his Of Two Minds blog, where he says in the headline, the Fed cannot stop supply-side inflation. And in fact, the Fed and other central banksters have zero control of supply-driven inflation, period. And he makes some really good points Listen carefully to this. America's financial punditry, he says, is bewitched by these four fatal fantasies. Number one, inflation is demand-driven. If the Federal Reserve or other central banksters reduce demand with monetary tools like raising interest rates, inflation must cool. Number two, substitution of high-cost goods with lower-cost goods. In other words, if you can't afford steak, eat hamburger. And if you can't afford hamburger, yeah, we'll have first dog food for you. And eventually, you know it, bugs. Anyway, that reduces inflation. And substitution is infinite. There's always something cheaper if beef gets too pricey. (laughs) You just may not want to eat it. Number three, higher prices will lead suppliers to increase production, which will increase supply and reduce prices. Well, unless, of course, you live in a communist economy where there are all kinds of disincentives to produce at all, much less more for less. Number three, the Federal Reserve has control of all of these inflation and reducing dynamics via interest rates and its balance sheet, buying or selling various durations of treasury bonds. In other words, printing up new money to buy stuff that nobody else wants. All four of these, and I think maybe it's obvious, but here he goes, are fantasies. Fantasies are in fact fatal because they're flat out false. The Fed, he continues, has no control over supply-driven inflation, which is what we have now. For an example, consider eggs. The price has skyrocketed, not because consumers suddenly ramped up demand and wanted more eggs that's now outstripping supply, but because essential inputs to supply, such as feed and energy and water and things that are being destroyed or absolutely put away, have soared in price, and the constraints have nothing to do with interest rates. Finally, he says these essential inputs are going up in cost due to factors completely unrelated to interest rates or monetary policy at all. Drought and weather extremes are constraining the supply of animal feed stocks. Energy prices are being driven by geopolitical forces like absolute stupidity at the national level, closing pipelines, shutting off supplies cutting off people's noses to spite their faces, and with the soaring input costs of producing things like chickens, chicken is no longer that cheap. And the trouble is, higher input costs affect all production. There simply are no cheaper substitutes when essential inputs for everything are soaring due to supply constraints or literally broken supply chains. The financial fantasy holds that entrepreneurs will rush to build new production to reap the gains generated from higher prices, but this is nonsense when in some cases there simply is no supply. The supply chains are broken, and ultimately input costs are rising for all producers. And unless somebody can get energy basically free and feed for free too, especially in the absence of little trivial things like fertilizer or increasingly water, The new producer's cost will be the same or even higher than existing producers whose profits are already pressured as prices rise. 
It makes no sense to pour capital, writes the author, into a sector with declining profits and higher input costs. So the idea that raising or lowering interest rates by even a full percentage point is going to magically resolve supply constraints generated by systemically higher input costs. Oh, in a lot of cases, folks, let's not kid ourselves, sabotage is delusional on multiple levels. It is, in fact, the magical imagination of financial punditry that some fresh-faced entrepreneur will plant more grain to feed more chickens because it's so darn profitable. And, of course, as your host has already noted, what if there's no water? What if the cost of fertilizer and other inputs is so high that even higher prices might not yield a profit for such a risky venture? And, of course, what happens if federal agents come in and kill all your chickens, too? The disconnect from reality pundits don't factor in the possibility that one storm or one bunch of goons or, nowadays, a suspicious fire could wipe out the harvest just as the crop or the chickens or whatever it is that they want gone reaches maturity. And let's not forget, when it comes to energy, there's a 10-year permit process for whatever this fresh-faced entrepreneur might have in mind. Forget windmills that never will produce enough energy to make them profitable, much less truly sustainable, even with subsidies. But instead, consider the much-hyped modular mini-reactors that so many are now thinking will solve all of our energy problems. One design just received the go-ahead, and a prototype is expected to reach the initial trial stages in uh, 2030. Oh, yeah, that will whip inflation now. You got it. Meanwhile, back in the real economy that the pundits don't appear to inhabit, the Fed has blithely overseen the strip mining of wage earners for 45 full years now, and they're now powerless to stop the inevitable snapback. And let's not forget, Big Brother just approved 87,000 or so new IRS agents to further harass our people and eat out their substance. Bottom line, the Fed raising or decreasing its balance sheet by a trillion bucks or so has zero effect on wages rising for profoundly systemic reasons. People, if they uh, want to live, have to eat, in other words. And while we're highlighting the Fed's complete powerlessness over the input constraints of things like essentials, let's also burst the delusionary pundit bubble that the Fed raising or lowering interest rates by a point or two has any effect on tax donkeys and debt serfs, whose student loans and credit card balances remain at rapaciously high interest rates. In other words, they got nothing to do with those preferred rates that only banksters have access to anyway. But let's not kid ourselves, they can certainly go higher. And the fantasy that the Fed can reduce supply-driven inflation, he concludes, from systemic constraints on essential inputs is not just delusional, it's downright toxic, because it generates unrealistic expectations and diverts policies, and that, your host will suggest, is as intended, into dead ends, so that real solutions become impossible because the assumptions are bogus from the get-go. Yep, the Fed and other central banksters have zero control over supply-driven inflation, period. And that means, folks, that if they don't know the problem, they're never going to come up with the proper solution. But you already knew that now, didn't you? The bigger problem is they're not looking at all for the solution they'd like you to believe they are. But whether you read history or scripture, it's arguable that what they are planning is a final solution one way or another. 